from China to Wall Street to uh, Missoula, people are treating government debt as if it will never default. So if you're risking that, yes, I would be nervous, not just for being an American, but also for being a citizen of the world of what is the economy going to be like if the U.S. stops providing the service of creating an asset that everyone knows is going to repay. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back to another edition of our monthly Incentives and Instincts series with Bryce Ward. Bryce, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, it's good. Uh, we've had some snow. It's kind of like had a real like little blast of winter, but it seems like it's not going to maybe last forever. And we're kind of, the sun is out and the snow might start melting again. So it's good. Indeed. Yeah. Feels uh, somewhat normal for, for February. Anyway, we got through the Capitol riot, inauguration, impeachment, and now presumably Congress will take up the most recent COVID relief bill in earnest. We hear the $1.9 trillion price tag. Some say that's too much. Some say not enough. How do we make sense of that? Well, we decided to phone a friend. We're joined today by Dr. Ricardo Rice. Ricardo is the A.W. Phillips Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics and a prolific expert on macroeconomics, inflation, unconventional monetary policies, and a bunch of other stuff I barely understand. He's worked as an academic consultant to the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve System. And perhaps most impressively, he survived graduate school in the Harvard Economics Department with Bryce. Ricardo, welcome to A New Angle. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Indeed, I survived and with pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So to start us off, I guess when we're thinking about COVID and the economy, like what is it we're trying to do and how should we be thinking about it? You know, is this a challenge of economic stimulus? Is this disaster relief? Is it war funding? Or is it something else entirely? Well, it's really a mix of all three that you just mentioned. I mean, I think to first order, it is disaster relief, meaning we have gone through a shock to the economy that was completely unforeseen in many ways, and that really stopped our ability to work, to produce, to trade with each other. In other words, the ability to generate GDP and income. Now, given that large disaster, that has also had a very differential effect across people. Some have suffered a lot, lost their livelihood, lost their income, their ability to generate any income at all and to feed their children and families. Others instead have been able to transition to remote work and have seen no loss in income or maybe even potentially an increase. Well, in these circumstances, when we have a large aggregate shock, that people really were not able to insure beforehand. You couldn't really go out and buy insurance against a pandemic if you were a worker or, or, a, or a business back in 2018. That affects everyone with very differential effects, making it very hard for me if I suffered a lot to go and borrow from you to overcome it if you didn't suffer a lot. Then this creates a very powerful role for the government to provide that needed relief. That is to borrow from the future in order to provide help to some of the families or businesses that were the hardest hit, in order to make sure that the social insurance that we as a society give in the sense of transfer from the most fortunate to the least fortunate happens to some extent, especially as this comes as a shock. Not redistribution, not taking the risk of the poor, but rather insurance against these very large aggregate risks that have differential impacts. So that's the sense in which there's relief. It was very needed. Many families suffered quite a bit. And that was, in many ways, the large component, certainly of 2019 and all, and, and also uh, 2020, and now moving into 2021. Now, at the same time, there was also a stimulus side to it. And the stimulus side to it comes from understanding that an economy is like a connected set of valves or tubes connecting each other, much like in the plumbing of a house. Water has to flow from different divisions. Water flows in some directions. And in the other direction, we have electricity wires and other wires providing for the environment in which we can live in. Well, during the pandemic, as we stopped some regions, 
through lockdowns and through other behaviors and impositions of the government for their ability to provide for different parts, it meant that there was a very strong risk that the whole machine stops because the lack of my demand for your services, say, would mean that you stop having revenues, but you now stop being able to have the demand for Bryce's services through, again, this circle, the circular flow that economists are characterizing. Well, what this implies is, or what this leads to is, there's a certain need for stimulus in the sense of government stepping in and through either purchase of the government, or in this case, more directly, for them to be able to continue with their purchases before and be stopping the entire plumbing from freezing or breaking down. That's the sense which is a stimulus. It was not conventional stimulus in the sense of, unlike what sometimes I think was somewhat foolishly said 12 months ago, people said, oh, all we need is to pump money as usual, buy airplane tickets, fly, fly airplanes around the world to make sure that the people who fly airplanes don't get fired. No, that's not the point. It's not the stimulus in the sense of creating agate demand for the sake of aggregate demand. It's rather creating sectoral demands across different people, the government stepping in through transfers and others to making sure that the flow doesn't get completely disrupted in a way that then has very long lasting damage. So that's the second side of it, if you want, the stimulus side of it. Now, as we enter 2021 and with the vaccination well underway, this, the relative mix of the two starts changing somewhat as well as other considerations come into effect. But if we talk about 2020, I would say relief, first and foremost, some stimulus as well. We're just basically trying to keep the economy operating. And we, we still have in the U.S. something like 10 million or 12 million excess unemployed. So, you know, our goal is to, you know, help them out, get the economy back to something resembling full employment as quickly as possible. I don't think there's much disagreement on that vision. What we're starting to get to as we see the end in sight is okay. Well, what's the what's the what what's the price we're going to pay long term for this, right? And because we're going to end up taking on debt, we already took on debt for what we did last year. Whatever we do this year is likely going to be paid for through debt, or at least mostly through debt. Look, I'm fairly certain that almost every single talk I give on the economy in Montana, somebody raises the, how are you going to pay for this question? So what I think we want to get into you with most, with most of our time today was, well, how do we pay for this? Right. You know, there's, it's the easy version. The simple version is we think, well, it just means that we're going to pay taxes later. We're going to pay taxes now, or we're going to pay taxes later. But you know, the reality is a little bit more complicated than that. So would you give us the Act 10 version of when the government borrows who actually pays? What are the consequences of this that we need to be kind of, what are we trading off in trying to get benefits today relative to costs that we're going to pay tomorrow? So as you well put it, when we are borrowing, when the government is borrowing and the government has borrowed in very large amounts, as, as I argued before, probably should have given a temporary unexpected shock and the need for some spending, it is nothing but, but in borrowing, it is nothing but saying, I will tax future generations or our generation, but fewer people over the next 10, 20 years in order to pay for the accumulated debt. In that sense, and going back to our relief question from before, there is a resemblance here of a war, like Justin noted, which is, well, we have a very large amount of spending. In that case, not to keep the economy going, but to keep the nation going, to survive the foreign aggressor. And then we pay for it over the next decade or two but it, and pay for it by raising taxes. From a simple perspective, Bryce, yes, today, accumulating debt, having spent well above taxes, in the future, we are going to have to have higher taxes to pay for it. Now, there are those some um, steps in between that affect not whether, whether you're going to raise taxes, but especially how much you're going to raise them. In particular, it may even be a negligent amount, a completely irrelevant amount under some possibilities. And this is the following. An important issue here is... And how much are you able to borrow? At which rate you're able to borrow? And second, how fast is your economy growing? For instance, if when I am 18 years old, I go to college and happen to borrow at a very low interest rate over the next 20 years, what at the time when as an 18-year-old sounds to me like a fortune, let's say $100,000, if however I have 20 years to pay it at 
an absurdly low interest rate, let's say 0% just for the sake of it, so that I only have to pay it when I turn 38. But by the time I turn 38, my income grew from the measle, say, from the mere $15,000 that I made at 18 to now me earning $150,000 or more per year by the time I'm 38. Then all of a sudden, those extra 100000 that I now need to, that I borrowed 18, that I have to pay at 38, don't seem like such a big deal. They seem like a fairly small amount given how much money I'm making every year. Likewise, with the government, it makes a difference, a big difference in how many taxes it has to raise, how large did the debt grow at, accumulate what the interest rate was, as well as how richer do future generations, how richer will we be in 10, 20, or 30 years. On that account, there is quite a bit of, um, well, controversy is not the right word, but rather disagreement because both the interest rate and the growth rate can change over the space of these 10 or 20 years. So right now, some will point, look, the interest rate is really low right now. Indeed, it has been very, very low. But at the same time, it's not going to rise soon. And we have not seen the government lock in these very low 10 and 20 year rates. Quite on the contrary, over the last six months, what we've done for the most part is have the Fed, the central bank, buy all the 10 and 20 year debt and instead borrow from banks overnight. So if anything, we've moved into more overnight borrowing and overnight rates may change certainly over the next 10 year rise. On the other side, on the growth, of course, even more uncertainty. Who knows exactly how much the U.S. economy is going to grow over the next 10 or 15 years? Now, looking at estimates today, it is true that the difference between growth rates and interest rates, or between interest rate and growth rate, seems has been at a historically quite low level, which would justify borrowing more than you would have 10 years ago. I think qualitatively, that is a true statement. In 2021 versus in 2001, today I would be willing to borrow a lot more because the taxes to match it are likely going to be much lower than they were 20 years ago. Does that mean, though, that the borrowing a lot more is as much as we have borrowed? Have we already gone well beyond it? Are we still beyond? That is a much harder discussion and one that we're still having uh, and one that is not completely easy to answer, of course. But let me add one consideration to finish the answer to that, which is a big part of what's happened in the last six months is that the government has been borrowing very large amounts, but at the same time, people have been saving very large amounts as well. And that is why interest rates haven't gone up and if anything have gone down or they've gone up slightly in the last two months. Why? Because as much as we needed to provide the social insurance, the relief, the agate, the demand stimulus that we talked about before, the fact is that the U.S. government, from the nature of how state, local, and federal government works in the U.S., is, has a lot of difficulty targeting those checks, that relief, to the people that really need it. As a result, we had very large packages that went to a bit to everyone. And what we observe, Bryce, and this is really a quite striking fact, is that between 2019 quarter three and between 2020 quarter three, that is during those 12 months, disposable income in total, and so you may want to think about as the average family in the United States, increased by a record 8% in a year. Note well, we had the biggest recession since the Great Depression, and yet people in terms of money in their pockets after to answers for the government, actually had a fantastic year. Again, no, this is on average. Many people have suffered very much. But on average, that is in total, disposable income increased a large amount. And what was the other side of that very large increase in disposable income? The savings rate in the US, which over the last two, three, four years had been hovering around 10%, this is the household saving rate, over 2020, and it, it was much higher, it peaked in April at 35%. Americans had never saved that much as they did over a couple of months. Now, that saving matched the public dissaving of the government, if you want. Thus, interest rates didn't rise very much. The very big question, Bryce, not just over the next 10 years, but the uncertainty that will be resolved in the next six months, maybe 18 months, is as we get vaccinated, as we go back into the shops, as we go back into work, are we going to see people who accumulated very large savings? And this may well be the top 20% of the population. That's fine. I'm not talking here about inequality, by the way, as I've made clear. But are those people going to go out on a massive spending spree? If they do, then we'll have a very large increase in interest rates, potentially increase in inflation, and then the paying for it will become a little harder if we didn't lock in rates. 
Or instead, are we going to have that people hold on to those savings because they're afraid of the future? In which case, interest rates may not go up, but on the other hand, we'll end up with a very prolonged recession, perhaps even a depression, because people are really unwilling to spend. That is the big question for the next 12 months, not just for the debt and how to pay for it, but also for the fate of the U.S. economy. The short version is, yeah, we're going to have to pay for this. But there is a magical possibility where as long as growth exceeds interest rates, and particularly by the large amount that they are currently, we get what you call in the paper that you outline all this on, you call the bubble premium, right? And so basically, you know, so a lot of people in Montana like to run around and say, we need a balanced budget amendment. And I think what your your new paper argues is that, well, no, we actually, there actually is a, an amount of kind of permanent deficit spending that we are allowed to run as long as interest rates remain low relative to, well, the growth rate's the easy intuitive one, but you actually have a the marginal product of capital as the harder one, which I'm not going to try and force you to explain because I think the growth one is pretty simple, right? Which is, look, as, as long as I can, the pie gets bigger at, at a rate that's faster than the interest on the debt, uh, the burden of paying those taxes back is is minimal. So, you know, that's kind of the simple idea, you know, and so we we have some capacity for kind of permanent debt. And I'm going to put a pin in the, I'm going to come back to the inflation. I'm going to drill into the R minus R less than G for a second. And then we'll come back to your concerns about what's going to happen with spending as we come out of the pandemic. Okay. So as long as interest rates are less than growth and we have this bubble premium, I believe you have this rough estimate basically saying that at current levels or at recent levels, the U S can borrow 5% run a permanent deficit of like 5% of GDP. So, that's good news, right? So we have a little bit more fiscal capacity than just our tax level would 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 suggest. But the, the, there's a catch to this, which I believe you've also noted, which is that we're already running that as a, the projected current deficit. So I guess from a big picture perspective, what this means is that, okay, so we have this capacity to borrow, but we've already used it up. So what happens if we keep trying to go further? What's the, what's, you okay. know, what, you know, so we, we have capacity. What's, what, what's the bad news, right? So if we, if I say, well, look, let's run it up to 8% or 10% and try and run that as a persistent, as a persistent deficit, you know, fund a bunch of new programs or whatever it is, permanent spending. And, you know, and I, I want to distinguish what we're talking about now. The pandemic is separate, right? That's temporary spending, right? This is just kind of, this is going to go away, but there's a difference between if I try and slip into the $1.9 trillion relief package, a new permanent increase in a social welfare program or infrastructure spending or something like that, you know, that's going to make it so that five years from now, when we're out of COVID, we're still going to have this higher persistent deficit if we don't fund it. What's the, what happens? What's, what happens to me or the regular Montanans? that we need to be worried about if we try and run deficits, if we try and fund that spending uh, with no direct link to some taxation. Okay, so you covered a lot there. So I'm gonna break it into, I think, four or five steps. First, let me just start with Bryce referred to R and G. R was the interest rate and G, the growth of the economy that I had mentioned in the previous question, just so that listeners know what we're talking about. So Good I'm, catch. I'm gonna keep on talking about them as R and G. R for rate, G for growth. <laughs> If you want to keep it in your mind, listeners. But anyway, first, you made a point. Balanced budget. Why is it a bad idea? Look, balanced budgets can be a good idea if you think that your government is especially keen on spending too much, accumulating debt that will make you suffer in the future. At the same time, you're going to have some years in which you have a gigantic shock. Not quite a war, but in terms of economics, it really disrupted our ability to produce and generate income. These are the years in which you want to use the government's ability to borrow from the future in order to be able to provide the relief and to keep the economy going. Okay, So on balanced budgets, they are a bad idea. They may be a good idea in normal times. There may be some arguments for why balanced budgets should be, again, hey, maybe not so bad. 
but uh, there might it be for these times. Let me actually make a historical remark that some listeners may find interesting. There was a very famous economist called David Ricardo. No relation. Ricardo is a surname. I'm a Ricardo. <laughs> um, so David Ricardo, 200 years ago, was one of the first people to write, we should run a balanced budget every year. And the reason why he did it is that he was a British man, and he was really tired that in the 19th century, the UK kept on fighting wars every other year. So he said, look, if we have a balanced budget, fighting a war is going to be such a terrible thing for the economy that the government will not fight another war again. <laughs> because trying to fight a war or fight a pandemic without running a deficit is just a way to destroy your economy. So anyway, so that's a, the, an historical aside of where balanced budgets are a terrible idea or maybe a good idea if you want to prevent, well, sorry, but since we can't prevent wars, but we couldn't get the government to prevent the pandemic, I think that David Ricardo, even the David Ricardo argument wouldn't quite hold here. Now, Bryce, as you noted, uh, if this is a temporary amount of spending, then what the government can do, and a little bit to what I had explained in the previous answer, is to let's borrow now. And given that the R and the G look very favorable, the interest rate seems to be lower than the growth rate, we'll just be able to pay for that if we're able to just lock in that R for the next 10 or 20 years. Okay. This, by the way, has a colorful name sometimes in the economic literature. It's called a deficit gamble because you run a very big deficit and you gamble that the G is going to be above the R. And so eventually you'll pay almost nothing for it and zero taxes. That's kind of the extreme version where you pay almost literally zero taxes on it. Uh, as I said, the truth is probably going to be somewhere more, a little bit more in between. On that one, I think we already discussed in the previous question, and you rightly in your question move instead to, let's talk more instead of the permanent, okay? Now, when it comes to the permanent, calculation is a little different. We're not saying of, oh, I want to borrow now, but I'm going to, um, and to pay for it in 20 years, and it's just an issue of how much the tax are going to raise or not in 20 years. What we're asking here now is, can the government in some ways increase some more permanent spending at a minimal amount of extra taxation, also in a permanent way, not just to pay off in 20 years, but to pay, let's say, forever, um, a little bit of an abuse of a forever, but at least for the foreseeable future. Okay. Well, there, one point that um, I have made recently in my research and other economists have also made in different ways is that the U.S. over the last 100 plus years has enjoyed a great privilege. And that great privilege is that U.S. Treasuries, debt of the U.S. government, seems to be valued almost for its own sake, beyond the fact that you will pay it back. It is valued by investors because U.S. Treasury is used as collateral in all kinds of, of uh, transactions in Wall Street. It is valued by the Chinese who hold more than a trillion of it because they say, well, this is a safe uh, this is a safe, uh, um, sorry, this is something that I can hold if I want to intervene in my exchange rate and I want to buy and sell yuan against the dollars in order to in order to facilitate things for my economy, as well as a savings abroad that if we get into a big recession, we'll be able to use. The Chinese are one example, but there's gigantic amount of treasury bills held by foreigners, something like 25% or more, and they value it for them. People value them for their safety, they value them for their liquidity. They value them for being in dollars, which is the reserve currency of the world. What that means is that when we issue uh, borrowing, when we issue treasuries, I'm sorry, when we borrow as a U.S. government, we are in some ways with those pieces of paper providing a little bit of a service. And with that service comes a payment for it. How does that payment show up? We pay a lower interest rate than would be justified that any other nation would. Okay, That difference, that service, that convenience yield or bubble premium because, you know, in economics, sometimes these services will be referred to as a bubble insofar as the asset is worth by more than what it's going to pay you because it's worth in itself by all the services it will provide are a source of revenue for the U.S. government, okay? And they've been a source of revenue, you know, famously, a French prime minister 50 years ago called it the U.S.'s exorbitant privilege, its ability to, when it borrows, it gets paid to borrow in some extent this small amount. This, not small amount, but this uh, this premium of what it is, okay? The dollar premium, the treasury premium, uh, and so on. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Raging wildfires have scorched a record number of acres and killed at least continues to climb from those devastating wildfires. Last year... 
wildfire scorched a landmass nearly five times the size of Yellowstone National Park. It was the largest area burned since reliable records began. Fires are getting bigger and hotter and more devastating than ever before. But what all that fire means and what to do about it depends on who you ask. The experience of a forest taking fire is really something. Not only a gift to us, but it's more more of a gift to the land. There will always be fear of fire, I, I know that, and I don't pretend there won't be, but in certain situations, there shouldn't be. I'm Justin Angle, and for the last couple years, I've been talking to scientists, historians, and firefighters themselves to hear their stories. You owe it to the guys that died. I wanted to figure out, how did we get here? We're going to knock fire out of the landscape. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. It was a crazy ambition. And where do we go? It just, knowledge is is freaking power. I'll talk about it in a calm way, but this is me hitting the panic button. Am I making any difference here with the science? (laughs) That's what I wonder sometimes. This is Fireline, a six-part podcast series from Montana Public Radio and the University of Montana College of Business about what wildfire means for the West, our planet, and our way of life. Coming March 9th, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. So that is an amount that, if anything, seems to have grown quite significantly post the financial crisis. Okay? It seems that for in the U.S. Treasury interest rates, Justin and Bryce, when you look at them and compare them with the return that you would get with instead of lending to the U.S. government, lending to someone else, investing it in the Montana in Montana's economy, uh, that's where the margin part of capital gives. How much you would get from just lending, investing in others than the than the U.S. government seems to have increased the gap between those. The government seems to be getting there seems to be something more special. The government seems to be borrowing cheaper than anyone else in the private sector in the U.S. economy or abroad than it did before. That says that, well, with that new source of revenue comes some potentially new source of spending. And as Bryce has put it, I've tried to quantify a little bit of how much that is and how much of a leeway it gives you. And interestingly, it can be quite significant. It can be amount to something like, like Bryce was putting it, something like maybe a 4% permanent deficit, 4 or 5%, and the change over the last 10 years, maybe an extra 1% or 2 or whatnot, okay? So the U.S., because of that, could run a deficit forever, meaning not quite raise the taxes because it's always collecting this premium when it does so. Now, that amount may be somewhat significant. I mean, we're not talking here about 30% of GDP, by the way. We're talking about, but still, not, not irrelevant. But two qualifications to that. The first one is that the U.S., and many economists have been estimating this for a while and mentioning it and pointing to it for a while, the U.S. was in a path of permanent deficits for already a very long time. The CBO estimates, Congressional Budget Office estimates of given current fiscal policy, if nothing would change, would be the deficit in the U.S. over the next 30, 40 years, it would be a constant roughly 4.8 to 5%. The CBO estimates that the deficit that was already before pandemic, before COVID, what accounted on the fact that we underfund Social Security, that we have an explosion of costs in healthcare, for instance, was already something like 4.8 to 5% of GDP. But if so, what I show is, well, if we already have that in terms of a permanent deficit, then the X, the R minus G, the premium that comes, we had already used. And so as a result, from this pandemic, as much as I told you 10 minutes ago that temporary spending was the right thing to do, pay it off, permanent spending, we just had already used that amount. And so when I read some economists and others now saying, aha, Remember, there's that premium and stating it. Why don't we use that now to make some permanent spending programs? I say, hold on. That premium was there before the pandemic. We had already used it in a bunch of different spending programs. So I don't see quite as much room for that to happen. Finally, Bryce also asked, so what happens? What happens if we borrow too much, right? What happens if we engage in too much permanent spending that's not matched by permanent taxation? Well, what happens ultimately is that 
you're unable to pay it back. <laughs> if you're not taxing enough relative to what you spend, you're not going to be able to pay it back. But now, how is it that a government does not pay back? Um, well, there are two ways to not pay back when it comes to government debt. The first one is literally to turn to the creds and say, sorry, each dollar I owed you, I'm going to pay you 70 cents. This are so-called sovereign defaults because of sovereign defaulting. These happen all over the world. The United States, ever since the great Alexander Hamilton created the federal debt, with a, he committed to saying, we will never, ever, ever do this. You won't do it until you have to. Just such a much like I tell my bank, I'll never, ever default my mortgage because I love my house until maybe one day I just can't do it. But still, the U.S. has, and this is the other side of the coin, Bryce and Justin, from the U.S. enjoys the safety premium is precisely because we believe that the U.S. will never default. And so if that were to happen, this would be an event of truly catastrophic dimensions, because I told you from China to Wall Street to uh, Missoula, people are treating government debt as if it will never default. It is the safe thing in the world. The dollar safe debt it is. So if you're risking that, yes, I would be nervous, not just uh, for being an American, but also for being citizens of the world of what is the economy going to be like if the U.S. stops providing the service of creating an asset that everyone knows is going to be repaid. The second side of it, though, is um, that you will, or there's three sides, I'm sorry. The second side is you will indeed tax people. You just won't tell them you will. Historically, this has happened through what's sometimes known as financial repression. What does that mean? I have bought my treasury debt. It's not going to default. But now the government is going to force me through regulations or other forms to accept an even lower interest rate on that debt and or to lend to it at a much below market rate. This has been, again, this has happened all over the world, including the U.S., when uh, at some points, and famously Regulation Q said that, oh, banks were allowed to not pay any interest on their depositors, and at the same time, were forced to hold some government debt at a fairly below market rate. Therefore, depositors, poor deposit all over the U.S., were effectively lending to U.S. government at a well below market rate. So that's a second possibility, and one that may well be coming, especially now that we, um, we have uh, strong financial regulations of different types. A third option, though, is inflation. What is inflation? It's nothing but saying that those dollars that debt is going to pay me back in 10, 20 years are just going to be worth less. They're going to be worth less in terms of the things I buy, in terms of the things that I consume. Here again, this is something that happens a lot all over the world. In the U.S., it happened for the most part in the 1970s, where indeed we had a bout of inflation, which combined with financial repression, meaning we poor depositors got 0% on their deposits at the same time as inflation was running at 10 11%, and therefore the right interest rate rental government should have been more like 13 or 14%. But through this inflation, we're able to expropriate those who hold the debt. Note that there is a, you could say though, Bryce, that across all of these, ultimately you have to pay back the debt somehow. Or in other words, the government has to raise taxes, expropriate if you want, take the risk from someone. In the first option where you default, you do it from the bondholders, the, the people who are holding the bonds right now. In the second one through repression, you try to tax savers de facto. Well, you're expropriating if you want the savers to pay for it. Difficulty with that one is, as we learned in the 70s, as well as in many other countries, you think you're really hammering on this or that bank, but actually then, you know, different interest rates adjust, who deposit the bank does it, who does not. It ends up being a little bit difficult to figure out exactly who gets hurt by it. Third, with inflation, similarly. Initially, you would think that inflation hurts especially those who lent, but helps those who borrow because it lowers, again, the real value of the debt. Well, what we experienced in the 70s, and it's not like most Americans who borrow relative to the few richer ones who lend, say, and save. It's not that those who borrowed gain massively at the expense of the other ones. Rather, what we saw precisely was that there's adjustments. Those who borrow see their debt transformed, repressed in different ways. And in the end, we end up with inflation being what sometimes was called the cruelest tax in the sense that it ended up taxing series of segments of the population that seemed very cruel to tax. So ultimately, it does get paid in different ways, 
but whether it gets paid through me taxing you just indirectly or by not paying Bryce, the bondholder, or through inflation, financial repression, affecting a little bit of all, comes in different guises. It has different implications distributionally, as well as how much of our economy, if you want, are we destroying in the process. Combining all of these, I think the sensible thing is to go and back and listen to Alexander Hamilton, not just the musical, but especially his writing on economics, and say, maybe it's safer to instead run prudent fiscal policy and not end up in any one of those outcomes, since that has contributed and has been such an important part of the U.S. being the financial center of the world for now quite a few decades. You started that answer with kind of uh, talking about growth rate and you know interest rates, et cetera. In a previous, you know, we we're talking about like how much to spend as a government. You know, what we spend it on would seem would have a bearing. You mentioned you know stimulus checks largely went to savings for a certain number of people versus spending on things that could maybe have some bearing on the growth rate and economic capacity, whether that's infrastructure or other other areas. How do you think about, um, besides the raw amount of a package, where it should go within an economy? How do we make choices about that? So that's a very good question, Justin, because that's one that has led to a very fierce debate over the last few weeks involving some prominent um, economists like Larry Summers, who had worked in many democratic administrations and others. Um, the point that has, that has been raised is in looking at the current Biden package, a very large part of it, roughly half of it, goes into two categories. First, sending new checks to people, direct checks, um, to pretty much every household in America, uh, subject to some not the very richest ones. And second, providing support, direct transfers to state and local government. Okay, As I told you, on average, people, on total, people... Actually, if anything, today have very high disposable income. Likewise, state and local governments, for the most part, have over the last 12 months, because of, again, what happened to tax collections didn't fall quite as much. It's the other side of the disposable income and spending didn't increase quite as much. If you look at most state and local budgets, actually, they're not, they didn't get a very big hole. The federal government's the one who stepped in over the last 12 months. So, and again, I want to emphasize that again. Inequality is gigantic here. Some states, some localities have suffered enormously and are in big holes. Some people, many people, have suffered enormously, okay? It's just in total. Maybe it's a minority that have gone the other way. I'm talking here about the aggregates versus the inequality. But still, um, starting from there, the question is, should we then be spending so much money, a trillion dollars, sending more checks to people and checks to local state government versus spending a trillion dollar investing in infrastructure, greening of the economy, perhaps, things that may help digital transitions, things that may help us raise the growth rate, right? Now, I think that's a tough question. It's really, and I mean this partly because I'm not going to answer it. Raising a great question and not answering it. Um, but partly because reasonable people can really be on both sides in spite of the vitriol that often public debates take. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a very strong case to say, why are you investing in infrastructure for five, six years ago when, like I said, the economy could be collapsing right now, people are suffering right now, you need to come to their aid. Don't tell me about, oh, let's save on the budget deficit this year, but let's instead save that, cut on that trillion and instead spend that trillion over the next three years on the very ambition Biden agenda for changing America in different ways. That's very much the Larry Summers argument. Okay. Um, and you can say, well, but there has to be an economy there. The other side of it is, well, but if you spend it all now, then the debt is going to grow so much, both the permanent and the transit that Bryce and I were discussing earlier, that in the end, you won't have then interest rates, even if they go up just a little bit you will immediately end up in 2022, 23, 24, being able to do any of those longer investments of some kind. It's a difficult trade-off, but hey, that's why we debate them. That's why we have newspapers. That's why we have podcasts to raise this, make an informed decision. Um, I think there are very good arguments on both sides. And ultimately, we vote and those re-elected have to make choices. And hopefully they'll be the big choices. If It's, of course, very scary because we're not talking about 10 billion. We're talking about a trillion. Uh, and that is, I think, the scary choice, um, the scary part of it, if you want. But um, but yeah, but I think that's the big debate in some ways now. Do you want to um, not not have such a large package, especially not have such large transfers to states and people, 
in order to instead invest more in infrastructure and other forms of government spending that have some hope of raising growth? Or do you instead realize that people need it now? You will be wrecking your economy in ways that can be extremely persistent, last for years, if not even decades, if you don't came to the aid of people now. Okay, so I know it's getting late in London and you need to move on to cooking supper for the family, but we have a very special listener question for you today, Ricardo, from a key member of our podcast, Operation. Here we go. Hello, Dr. Rice, and thanks for being a guest. I'm Jeff Meese. When talking about debt, I'm reminded of how modern monetary theory has been popping up in the press lately. From my limited understanding of it, I get the impression that it could encourage policymakers here in the U.S. to increase deficit spending on their individual pet projects, as well as others with broader support. In terms of the aggregate national debt level, does the theory make a distinction between external debt, for example, T-bills held by foreign governments, and accelerated money printing, where the debt is, in effect, internal between the Fed and Treasury? Okay, so I am not an expert in modern monetary theory, if I'll go MMT, um, and the experts in it tend to be a very, how should I say, fierce bunch who inevitably say that whomever speaks <laughs> about MMT didn't understand them and doesn't know what they're saying. So I, in some ways, I'm not the right person to answer what does MMT imply or not sure. imply, because that's just a very difficult challenge, and I do not want to claim that, that I'm that. So, but going more instead to the forgetting about the MMT part and just the question of the listener in terms of um, money printing versus that or others. Um, he's one, he mentions are there just pet projects for spending that some politicians or policymakers are trying to push now? Absolutely, as they do at all times, you know. And whether that pet project is let's invest on some new thing that's going to make America a better place. Or, by the way, if you look at the other side of the political aisle, here's my pet project is to cut all taxes and that will lead to miracles. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't I don't see such a big difference now than before. And I don't need to appeal to some vague MMT to say that that's happening or not. Okay. Second, and more interestingly, is what about this money printing? And here, let me just do a clarification that I hope will be useful to your listeners. Here's roughly what happened in the U.S. in the last nine months. As I told you, the government sent some big checks to lots of people. Okay? Those people, either because they were afraid to spend because of the recession, or because they were unable to spend because they were locked at home, saved it. And they saved it for the most part. Some of it went to the stock market, which went up a lot. Some of it, a big chunk of it, went into banks. Banks, with those deposits, deposited that money at the Fed in what's known as deposit central bank, sometimes also referred to as reserves. The Fed, with those reserves, bought a lot of government bonds. In other words, it lent that amount to the Treasury. So going back to my previous answer, the money kind of circulated. And then the Treasury gave it to people who put it in banks, who put it at the Fed, who lent it to the Treasury. Okay, And that's part of the reason why interest rates haven't gone up, because we just had this flow. Now, again, I'm talking here about aggregates. In the distribution, this came with very large implications, good implications, and some people got helped. But on aggregate, that was the flow. Okay. Now, some people look at this and say, well, look, the Fed printed a lot of money. Why? Because they look, these reserves are, isn't this just money printing or even better? They tell, they tell, they, they tell this cycle that I just told you, or the circle, I'm sorry, in the opposite direction. They say, aha, the Fed printed a lot of money, gave it to the banks. Well, the banks deposited from the people and then they bought the government bonds. It's the same circle, okay? And you can tell it in either way. A circle is a circle, okay? You can start whatever point you want as you go right or left on a circle. Now, was this money printing? No, in the following sense. This was borrowing by the Fed of from the banks, okay? Um, money printing, as conventionally understood, although, again, people often play with these terms endlessly, and the MMT debates are sadly a great example of these terms getting confused and thrown around in very different ways, which is if the central bank printed currency, banknotes, okay, and used them as a source of revenue, then there will be money printing. That leads to inflation. That leads ultimately and historically usually to hyperinflation. But... If what the central bank does is 
buy government bonds and at some point later sells those government bonds, lowers the amount of deposit the banks have in it, that in itself does not create inflation. It's a funny form of borrowing in that the treasury borrowed, but then used the Fed as an intermediary to borrow in a different way from the banks, but it is just borrowing in that sense. Again, the economic literature is very confusing on this, and I'm sure that there's going to be at least one listener who knows the economic theory a little and say, aha, but that's not borrowing, that's outside money, which is often a term that shows up here. Boy, for the listener, I think the right way to distinguish is for just at the level of Act 10, as Bryce was saying, is there's borrowing and there's printing banknotes. Printing banknotes and giving them out is what central banks can do. That generates a revenue. Sometimes those are the senior revenue. A few of those banknotes, you go and buy chicken and goats and milk, and that is revenue for the government. Issuing reserves, borrowing from the banks in itself does not create money in the sense, does not create the seniors in the sense, and in doing so does not alleviate any um, uh, borrowing constraint or budget constraint of the government. Um, maybe we'll get to that. Maybe we won't at some point. But that is, I think, at least a useful distinction for the listeners to be aware of. Okay, so if I'm trying to digest all of this, particularly the MMT, I mean, I, I guess we probably should have thrown a definite, at least some definition of MMT in there, which is, you know, the, the, the one sentence version is that the Fed can basically create money that doesn't lead to any of those consequences that Ricardo talked about. So then the government, the Fed can just lend those to the government and we basically get free stuff forever. I'm being a little bit glib because I don't understand MMT either, Ricardo. But, you know, the point is, you know, I, I tend to subscribe to the view that Ricardo laid out in his prior answer, which is, look, running deficits has real consequences in the long term, right? You're either going to have to make the bondholders hold haircuts, you're going to have to do some sort of regulatory scheme, or you're going to have to use inflation, and or you're going to have to just raise taxes, right? So those are our four options whenever we choose to try and run debt. And, you know, ultimately, to me personally, my preference is that when we go and spend money and we get the benefits of that spending, we know who we're taxing, right? So that we can, we can say, this is the cost of what we're doing and this is who's bearing that cost. And we're doing so aware of what's happening. So, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of how I think about fiscal policy and, you know, the, the, how that interacts with monetary policy is, look, the government has a role to play. There are good things the government can do that yield benefits to all of us, or at least enough of us to, that make it worth, that worthwhile. But the risk with debt is if we're not clear about who's paying for it, we end up putting that burden on people and we may end up saying, well, if I knew that that person was going to pay the cost, then the benefits aren't worth it because, you know, the, the balancing that we ultimately uh, hope to do as a society and as individuals just doesn't work out. So, you know, that's kind of my little summary of, you know, what we've tried to accomplish here today is that, you know, look, you know, we're trying to, you know, the government has roles to play. There's benefits the government can do. But when we say, oh, we can just run deficits forever and, you know, look, it's easy. I can point to a 0% interest rate and say, yeah, we should be borrowing. But, you know, I think Ricardo's right that we have to think, well, is that permanent and what happens? And, you know, I, I like your, you call it a Ponzi scheme in the paper, but, you know, there's definitely gambles that you're taking with it. So yeah, that's just my little two cents here at the end that somehow we made it through this whole podcast without me making a joke about Ricardo's age, which has been a long-standing sense of uh, source of, uh, you know, uh, humor. But anyhow. Well, make the joke, man. Here's your chance. Right. Rice is referring <laughs> to the fact that we started school and, you know, when you start graduate school in the first month in economics, you have to do this very intense math camp where you do a lot of math for a whole month, Justin. And then at the end, you pass this exam and you go and have beers because you know it's august and it was stuffy and hot and you were doing math for four weeks non-stop and uh and so bryce and i we're are close friends and we suffer through that math together for four weeks and we study all our math and at the end we were going to the pub to the bar drink some beer and i had to tell bryce you know bryce i'm not 21 yet so i can't judge you. <laughs> Indeed. And he he did turn 21 very shortly thereafter. But like the point is, is that Ricardo was the youngest person in our class. And even though he's barely two years younger than I am, 
uh, even to this day, we make jokes about Ricardo being a child. You let off the conversation with welcoming young Ricky into the show. Um, it seems like, you know, from my vantage point, trying to simulate listening to this thing, you know, the two precepts that uh, sort of I learned about economics seem to hold that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And uh, in the long run, we're all dead. I don't know how you necessarily feel about those as a summary, but now's the time of the show where we typically make predictions of the future, generally, um, something that's going to occur in the next month or so. Uh, Ricardo, I don't know if you want to join us in that, but Bryce, will you, what's your prediction this month? Um, I don't have one for the short run, and I guess I'll just make a statement, which I'm going to you know, steal from Ricardo, which is, there's so much uncertainty right now about all of this stuff. And while it would be nice for me to predict that, oh, no, inflation won't go up or interest rates will stay low or whatever it is. My prediction is, is that uh, a month from now, we will be much closer to resolving that uncertainty. Um, and each month going forward until we kind of get most people vaccinated um, will move us closer. And then once we get people vaccinated, uh, that's going to be a super interesting quarter because uh, we're going to learn about whether or not all of us who have been saving up our money um, say, oh, I guess I'll just keep saving it. Or if we go, uh, you know, as I kind of want to do, which is basically just like literally like leave my house and then not come back until school starts again. Right. Um, Ricardo, Ricardo prediction from you. Do you have one? Uh, I'm not sure I have a prediction, but I, I enjoyed what Bryce said. And I would add something, which is, I think there's this big uncertainty or this thing that will be resolved in the next six months is the extent to which, at which point the vaccination versus the incident disease, those two lines cross um, and we get, enough people vaccinated that the disease seems to be behind us, at least in this manageable way. And what will the world look like? And that then segs into what Bryce was saying is once we cross that, when it looks like it's safe for us all to go back to normal, what's that normal going to be? Is it right. going to be a new normal or the old normal? And I, I'm eager to find out because I do think, or maybe I'm crazily optimistic, but I think we're going to find out in the next six months. Um, we're vaccinating people at a relatively fast rate. And so as a result, we are going to hit that key point and um, lots of things are going to change around there. Indeed, it's fun to sort of think about pulling the future forward and what that looks like. I guess my prediction is uh, something we're sort of starting to observe already, and that is uh, more debate about ideas. It's nice to see that thoughtful people are engaged about how best to solve problems. And I like to think of a future in which we have smart people trying to solve problems and good faith disagreements about how to do it. It's fun to talk about those things. And it was fun to um, engage with you today, Ricardo. Thank you for sharing your time and wisdom with us. And uh, best of luck to you and your family and, and coming out of this pandemic on the right side. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Justin and Bryce. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO Jeff Ament and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, Tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.